uh, we have hit a philosophical wall where people um, are concerned about where their meat is coming from and you can they're animals they're living animals we can't intensify much further without becoming uncomfortable about it so we need to have this debate it's the right time Not too bad, thanks, me old chum. Not too bad at all. How are you? Very well, thank you. Welcome to Sustainable 63. 63. Ooh. We are your friendly little environment podcast all about people and the planet. And why can't we all try to have a bit of a laugh every now and then? And what have we got coming up this week? Oh, Oh, this week is a very special week because we're doing one of them, their interviews. We are very, very pleased that we have been to interview a lovely person called Louise Gray. Uh, Louise Gray is a journalist and now the author of a brand new book called The Ethical Carnivore. So we went along to have a chat to her about all things meat and killing and militant veganism, didn't we, Dave? <laughs> yeah, we went along uh, to a park, a little outside the interview this. We thought we'd be all environmental. Uh, and it was a park, we actually did this all about six weeks ago. So when we interviewed her, the book had not come out, but the book has now come out and it's uh, all over the shop. So um, yes, just the usual disclaimers, we do work for environmental charities, but these are very much our own views. So if you've got any beef... <laughs> With anything, beef. You're about to hear about anything. Take it up with me or him, but don't take it up with anyone that we work for. Yes? Absolutely. Okay, enjoy the interview. So we're here with Louise Gray, who has written a book called The Ethical Carnivore. Hello, Louise. Hi guys! <laughs> we are in a very, very beautiful little garden in South London um, and it's lovely to be here and lovely to be talking to you. Tell us all about the book. What is it? Why did you decide to write it? It's called The Ethical Carnivore and it's about my uh, year only eating animals I killed myself, which sounds pretty extreme. Um, I guess it is, but it was the only way I could justify eating meat. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I was working on the environmental issues and I knew I ought to be a vegetarian or a vegan. But every time I um, went towards that, someone would say to me, hey, do you want this muntjac deer that, you know, was a pest anyway? And I thought, well, that's ethical meat. That's OK. But I didn't want to be that really annoying person at dinner parties who says you know, I only eat it if uh, I know where it comes from. So I started saying I'd only eat it if I killed it myself. And I didn't really mean it. And then... Um, <laughs> very, very careful. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was a slightly extreme reaction. But the more... I st- and then I started talking to people and I realised there was this massive hole and people didn't know where their meat came from. And as a writer, I just really wanted to explore that. So I thought I'd go and discover for myself... And um, and I just discovered so much more along the way. It became a book. So you don't have, you don't fundamentally have a problem with eating 
meat. You don't. You don't sort of. It, no. You weren't doing it to sort of spite yourself. You, you actually. No, I don't because I think, and and also I think um, there's a, there's a spectrum, and and people who have fundamentally have a problem with um, killing animals, I think, wouldn't really accept the premise um, of this book. Um, I I do. Um, but I think there are more humane ways to do it. And I don't think that when you do it, you should just say, oh, I do it, and then uh, not explore that and accept that and take responsibility. That's a really key thing um, and something I think we've um, lost touch with as a society. So for for people who um, will hopefully be going out to buy the book in massive numbers, just give them a quick um, sort of praise of what you actually did over that. I think it turned out to be two years? It actually turned it? out to be two years, yeah. So I started off small... Um, and actually, um, uh, I was vegetarian and vegan most of the time because it was very difficult and quite traumatising at the beginning. I was very upset um, when I uh, killed the first animal. You should read the book to find out which animals. Um, but I gradually learnt um, how to um, stalk and fish and... Um, uh, source my own meat from the countryside but I felt like uh, once I'd done that I felt like I wanted to then explore where our domestic meat comes from as well because I thought it's totally unrealistic um, for everyone to eat rabbits and squirrels and deer from the countryside um, and so I started following pigs sheep cattle through the whole process including the slaughterhouse so in those cases I wasn't always doing it myself because I'd only really do it myself if there was a good ethical reason and I could do it well Um, that was more about um, exploring uh, where it came from Um, and then at the end I started exploring alternatives to meat because it came clear to it became clear to me that we ought to be eating a lot less you know, if you really want to take responsibility for meat you eat, then um, you've got to spend more money, frankly, and um, and work a bit harder at it. So in that case, it would be impossible to just, you know, scoff as much meat as we do. So then that became um, a, that became like a quite a strong uh, message in the book. Um, I was struck by the first animal that you killed. Yes. Which is a bunny. The rabbit, the, yeah. The bunny. Yeah, the, with the white Thumper. blaze. Yeah. And I was, yeah, oh God. <laughs> when I read that, I was really yeah, struck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apart from... Oh, apart from how well it's written, but I was really yeah. struck by how your first instinct was to take it to the vet. Yeah. Um, and I was... And that, that's just, it comes up quite a few times that you sort of... You, you see yourself... Uh, feeling bad for what you've done yeah. at the same time as feeling like you've done something you should be doing. How did you ever deal with that sort of... Well, I think I went into it um, quite naturally and how most people would react um, because I'm a you know, fairly average person. Like I'm not, I'm not a you know, big vegetarian, but I'm not eating a massive meat eater. I like animals. I think I'm quite an average person who um, could, could kill an animal if you needed to but is quite sensitive to how sad that is. It is really sad. And actually, every single person I spoke to, I spoke to lots of slaughtermen, butchers, farmers, and not one of them turned around and said they didn't feel anything. They, 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 they did, um, and they took responsibility for it. So when I was writing that, I was just being open about what it feels like. And not many people admit that because... Um, 
I guess it's sat nobody really wants to know and but through this book um, through doing it personally and telling a story um, and bringing other characters into it I hope I've made it um, interesting and accessible for people so that they can sort of think about it for the first time rather than just be horrified or upset. So do you think, it is often said that um, everyone should have to go into an abattoir slaughterhouse, which is a thing I've, I've often said, you know, like if, if you want to eat, militant veganism. in my yeah. militant veganism, yeah. um, if you want to eat this stuff, at the very least understand what it is. Do you yeah. think, having been into one, yeah. um, and not enjoying it very much, from yeah. what I read, do you, do you think that's right? Um, no, and I don't think, the other thing people say is that, you know, if you're going to eat it, you should be willing to kill it yourself. And I just think that's a bit simplistic because I spent two years doing this. It took me a long time to learn uh, the skills and to take the time to consider it um, for myself, to, you know, um, to be able to process it emotionally. Um, that, that took me a long time. Um, and it's the same with um, going to an abattoir. I think one should understand it um and i think you know possibly visit it but with care you know you can't just take a group of school kids and um even like in the book i go to a slaughterhouse with glass walls in places like denmark they show them from behind glass walls and that's okay but i think it's really important to explain to them where those pigs came from they've got to understand you know are they comfortable with those pigs being only four months old and uh, having the tail docked and being in a small um, indoors, as well as seeing them processed really in, in, a, in, a, in an abattoir. So I think we should understand. We don't have to do it ourselves. We have to understand. And that's kind of the point of my book. It's so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, that was, that's my role as a writer, to do it so that you can, so that you can make so you can make better decisions because I've gone out and found out all about it for you. The chapter about going to the abattoir mm. uh, I found hugely affecting. I only read mm. it this morning on the mm-hmm. tube and I practically missed my stuff because <laughs> I was just like, this is very, very intense. Yeah. Um, how are you? How long ago was yeah. that for a start? And how, how are you now? Well, you I think also I went as a writer and lots of people go like so all the press team and McDonald's have apparently gone and anyone no who, anyone <laughs> who studies apparently that's what they told me and anyone who studies agriculture uh, any buyer from a supermarket most farmers but I think they'll go with that head on you know and I went in as a writer going oh I'm going to be all sensitive and look at everything so that's why it was so uh deeply affecting Mm. but that was good because I was there to absorb and to see it and um, yes it did upset me and I don't really want to go back but I have actually been back and um, it didn't get into the book because there's only so many avatars you can put in a book before people (laughs) get bored Um, and I'm much better now I can understand what's going on but I'm still affected by it but I think that's natural and good it's like what I was saying I think if you're used to it then you're in a different position and you wouldn't really be able to write about it for a normal audience. I think what I'm doing, I think I'm, like I said at the beginning, 
um, I think I'm telling you what it's like for an ordinary person. We have this really complex relationship with animals. Mm. We are animals. It's not like a write about cowspiracy and um, quite extreme vegan views. And I think it kind of yeah, Dave. takes <laughs> us away from. Is it? Well, I mean, I, th- I really admire it. I think like, you certainly have a, as a vegan, have a lighter footprint on the planet. It's a very, it's probably the best thing you can do. Best thing you can do. See? Yeah. yeah. But if you I admire you too. <laughs> yeah. Of. Yeah. But there's also this really, you know, as a writer there's this really interesting aspect of us that is animal and is connected with the animals and we eat each other. And that's Do, do we? Or part of the process. <laughs> well, yeah, some of us. Some of us. <laughs> I had always assumed that people who have these sorts of jobs kind of are hidden away. That, yeah. it's, that it's a sort of unacceptable, unspoken bit and, of our economy. And that was, that was a but really... it doesn't seem to come across like that in your... Yeah, your well, that was a really um, key motivation for me because it really struck me at the beginning when I spoke to people, um, especially a lot of the animal rights group, they'd say, oh, these people are psychopaths and they're bad people. And I thought, my goodness, well, um, I, first of all, I tried to find some statistics and I did find some... <laughs> Numbers of psychopaths working in... <laughs> well, I did find some. They do exist and... Oh, there is a higher number of there is a higher incidence of alcoholism and crime, but that's because there's a lot of men, and um, and it's a fairly um, uh, it's not a very high wage in the packing halls and places like that. So there are lots of other factors. But I felt if you're going to eat meat, you should respect the per- well. You owe you owe at least the person some understanding Mm. Um, there's a lovely um, quote in my book and it's from a butcher in 1847 and he's saying um, we are not even now dregs and we never were and he's speaking to this new vegetarian movement and he probably wasn't a very educated man but even then he was sort of saying I'm doing this really tough job um, so you should respect me and um, they're difficult people quite gruff but I think if, if you think if you really think that people killing animals are psychopaths and bad people, then you shouldn't eat meat because then your meat is coming from a terrible place. And lots of people do believe that and they don't eat it. So mm. if you are going to eat it, then give them respect and um, and and expect to pay them well and treat them well. One thing that um, occurred to me, and I've seen this in in, in the writing of other people who. Actually, probably ex-colleagues of yours, people mm. like George Monbiot, people mm. who write on the environment, who talk about a, a kind of coming to life almost in actually engaging with the raw um, process of, of killing food, um, of coming face to face with it. Did you did you have a sense of that? When yeah, sort of abs- yeah, absolutely. When you're stalking, when you're when you're out in the early morning and you know you've got to get in close to an animal then all your senses are alive, you know, because you have to be aware of every sound you are making and which direction the wind is going um, and where the animal is. And that is enlivening. But I think when you get close to the animal, you have a gun, number one, Mm. and also you're not starving. So it's it's not entirely close to some sort of animal instinct. So, um, so I would, so I definitely say the stalking, um, is something that brings you life but I would say quite a lot of photographers and things people would feel that when they get close into an animal um, 
So you don't need to go off and try and kill animals to get that feeling. And the other, um, um, and I'd also like to say it's not about, there's nothing male or female in that I didn't particularly find. The strongest thing I found was something uh, uh, which I would call hunter's pride, which is bringing meat home for other people. And I found that across all the people I spoke to, um, um, often quite old men who talked about when they were young boys you know and that's why they did it they wanted to bring meat back to the table and I found that I found serving my friends pheasant or chicken or squirrel or whatever I've made and being able to tell them exactly where this meat came from um, was a great sense of pride and satisfaction and um, so I think that's the sort of atavistic instinct that I could really tune into and understood the best there's the, a section in uh, I think it's the last chapter of your book actually mm. where you talk about um, sort of what next where, mm. what are the directions, the trends in, in um, certainly how we're going to consider protein as a mm. growing population and it feels like there's actually an element of that kind of um, hunter's pride in some of the people who are trying to create the artificial meat if you like or the, the meat yeah. free proteins and you talked about the, the, a young couple in Borough yeah. Market I Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's really true. You know, people... Um, I never wanted to be rude about vegetarians or people who, who, who don't eat meat because I think there's great passion mm. and uh, creativity in the kind of foods that they're coming up with. And, uh, yeah, I think you're right that, that they are also feeling that satisfaction in creating something that people find satisfying and there's different pe some people don't want it to be like meat because they feel like that is sort of going backwards to this sort of um uncivilized past where we ate meat but quite a few people accept that there is a part of us that wants something meaty and it's a great challenge and i guess there's a scientific thrill as well isn't there in creating yeah, yeah. something so but i like that you've linked those two because i like um i like that you know that those two sides of the coin people who think you ought to go hunting and people who want us all to eat vegetables could actually have something in common so i put it to you yes that what you have done is all very well and good mm. but you have to have money to do it so that you, it's basically a nice middle-classy indulgent mm. thing to do that if you have a family of four to feed and you don't earn mm. very much, you can't worry about any of this stuff. Uh, what's you, what do you say about that? Like, what, yeah. what have you learned for kind of, you know... Yeah, I, ex I ex expected that to come because, you know, I come from a quite middle-class background, you know, I don't have any kids... Um, I was writing a book to do this so I'm not going to deny that there's definitely an element of, of being able to spend money and time on this but if you uh, talk to any of the chefs nutritionists, economists studying this, someone who springs to mind is Jack Monroe who, mm. uh, you know, who um, has spent her whole career working out how we can eat better on less meat on less, um, with uh, less money and she'll say you don't need to um, you, you don't need to uh, eat really terrible meat, and I don't, and I think there's an element of being slightly patronising, saying that poor people don't care about where their meat comes from, um, and there are ways that you can um, eat well 
and eat good meat. For example, uh, making the meat last longer, buying different cuts. Um, so there are there are ways you can do it. And I'm not a nutritionist or an expert in that, but I, I direct people towards Jamie Oliver, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, pretty much any chef uh, would tell you that. And I think um, it's sometimes uh, used by... Um, big companies who want to sell us a lot of cheap meat and it's a bit of an excuse so um that you know having said that you know i can't uh, as so i i as someone in a position where i could um spend all this time on this subject um um i guess i well no actually I, I eat less meat so i'm not spending much on it at all i'm probably spending less than other people so there's just a very definite trend towards less and better meat and i would argue uh that you could do that on any income if you told someone in the 1950s that in 30 years time everyone would be eating curry and pasta they would have laughed in your face and said don't be so stupid that's the the chattering middle classes but of course it trickles down and I don't see why this shouldn't trickle down. I think that um, ac- across the world, I mean, America's eating less meat. Uh, we have hit a philosophical wall where people um, are concerned about where their meat is coming from. And you can, they're animals, they're living animals. We can't intensify much further without becoming uncomfortable about it. So we need to have this debate. It's the right time. So do you think the trends that um, you set out in your, in your book about basically declining meat consumption, um, certainly in the Western world, um, are down to people caring more about where their meat has come from? Or do you think it's something else? Do you think it's people having less money? Yeah, or well, do you it, think it's people caring more about the health impacts? And perhaps you could touch on one thing which you mentioned, which is the impact of these World Health Organization reports, yeah. which you, I think... Think it's yeah, quite I mean the the decline in in eating red meat has has happened um, with the recession, so it's definitely been prompted by money. But I think that um, there's also some um, uh, th- th- there's also media stories which are beginning to actually have traction with the public. So the World Health Organization have come out and said processed meat probably causes cancer don't and if, eat bacon don't eat, eat bacon, bacon. You'll die yeah 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 which of course yeah 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 <laughs> but of course and of course we've scoffed at that you know don't tell us what not to do um and but i think it will trickle down a little bit and most of us actually don't eat too much but there is a section of society who who really are so i think and also the climate change aspect of it you know everyone's a little bit tired of talking about climate change but this is the one area where you can make a big difference through your personal choices and that's trickling down too and Arnold Schwarzenegger has been the person who came out and said that and that's great and when Arnie tells you 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 do it (laughs) well when Arnie tells you even if you're a big strong man who likes eating bacon then you're not ashamed to say that maybe once a week you'll have a veggie sausage so it's quite a powerful thing Uh, in your, your book, you talk about this film, Cowspiracy, um, and the people involved are quite critical of mm. the NGOs, the, the environment mm. charities, mm. the green movement, for basically not doing enough to say, we've got to eat less meat. Um, 
do you think that's fair criticism do you and and why is it that you think that these groups haven't yeah i i do think that that's true i do um ngos like friends of the earth and wwf have done reports but not as many as they've done on climate change and you don't hear them shouting so loudly about it and the reason is they're frightened of putting off um Uh, people joining their organisations because it's quite irritating being told what to do and how to eat and they know that so I don't think it's a conspiracy um, in the sense uh, in cowspiracy you know they suggest I mean I I think this did happen in America in in, in South America in the past you know that these big meat lobbying firms were threatening people Um, I think it's much more simple than that I think even the RSPB will say we ought to eat less meat. But they don't want to put that on their advertising, do they? They want to put uh, pictures of rescuing birds because that's how they get money. And I think that the NGOs need to start being... Well, do they... They don't need to start lecturing people because that won't work. But um, I think they have been the problem, quiet. They have been it's... quiet. They have been quiet about it because they know it doesn't... Because they know the Daily Mail and will go for them. Yeah. You know? Because it is, it is. Um, but I, I think so. There. Um, but it's but tricky, it's though. I mean, anyway, I, yeah. I spent like one of the things I've thought about yeah. thinking about meat myself, as I have done, is people go funny when you talk to them about meat. People react really defensively. Yeah. And they have that, and it is. It's easy. I've always found it quite easy to say, "Oh well, you know, the big charities should say more about meat." But it's hard. You know? Oh yeah, there's a great book called "The Sexual Politics of Meat" about how it's all sort of linked to the patriarchy. And uh, there's a great scene where they're having a dinner party, and she's describing uh, the omnivores attacking the vegetarian. You know, like um, like a sort of pack of predators, kind of. Um, letting out that 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 urge which i think is exaggerating slightly but there's definitely um people i think people feel very uncomfortable um about their what they're perhaps maybe uncomfortable or ashamed of being pointed out that's what it comes down to so you you mentioned the word patriarchy and i think maleness and meat are quite connected um, in many ways and why 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 do people talk about red-blooded males why is it such an associated um, thing in men being able to eat their bacon and eat their sausages and women by and large being less attached to it what I think I think it's existed for a long time uh, a lot of the suffragettes for vegetarians and um, it's often been been linked and I think there's an element of truth in it still happening now but there are some really interesting uh, campaigns against it now there are cage fighters that are vegan Peter often promoting uh, bodybuilders I already mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about vegetarianism Um, so it is I think that's changing it's it's a little bit of a cliche now Mm. it existed in the past but um, well, actually, and, and it exists now. Like you know, you'll still see burgers advertised as like real man, and yeah. um, I can't see that. Um, There's still the Jeremy it, Clarkson sort yeah, of attitude of like, yeah, you know, exactly. And I can't drive like a vegetarian type thing. Sure, <laughs> sure, but I think that's going to be um, a smaller proportion. Yeah. You know, um, and I think it's a bit of a joke now, isn't it? Really, I mean, come on, it's 2016. <laughs> Thank you.
Sorry, Louise, I don't think we mentioned this in uh, the beginning of this chat, but you spent five years as the environment correspondent at the Daily Telegraph. Mm. Um, and I'm fascinated to know what it's like writing on all things environment within the, the British press, um, because it, it seems like it's an area that sort of consistently gets less attention than it should. Mm. And um, it's also an area where I imagine it's quite easy to get very depressed or very at least ground down because the realities of what you're writing about are often fairly grim. So how did you find it? What, what's it like? Well, that was my, fir- my first book was writing about those five years. Um, but it, it wasn't very good. So, um, <laughs> so it was shelved. But don't worry, I'll come back with it. Um, and... Um, I I worked for the Daily Telegraph from 2008 to 2013, which was a really fascinating time to be there because um, at the beginning, climate change was a very sexy subject, getting on the front page. But yes, as you said, talking to a lot of people about um, the way we were heading if we continued as business as usual, um, warning of catastrophic climate change. And that did affect me personally. And that's why I remain in this area I remain very motivated to do something about it because of what those people told me um, and then by you know by the end by the time I left 2013 it was in the back of the paper mm. but it wasn't so contested it was more accepted as a mainstream uh, subject I actually spoke about this recently um, at a conference and I said you know if you don't give your editor what they want you get sacked which sounds like you know uh, that you're um, you're not you're not fighting for your subject. You're always fighting for your subject for climate change, but you do have to find ways to interest people, um, and um, and and generally your editor will know that because they're selling a newspaper. A newspaper is a blank page that has to be filled by the end of the day and has to be um, uh, has to be sold. Do you um, do you agree with? Um George Monbiot, the second time I brought him up, it sounds like he's the only person I read, which is not true. But, uh, I love him, but I don't agree with him he, on everything. No uh, way. No, I'm sure you truly don't agree with him on everything. On, on the particular point, of, I think one of his most recent columns was basically mm. saying the media is as much to blame for failure to act on climate change in this country as anything else. It's which interesting. seems like quite a strong statement. What, what, what do you well, think you know, because other countries... I mean, you could say that the US... Um, could be blamed for how climate change has been reported but in um in i think in you know continental mainland europe um where it's reported quite dryly i haven't seen them i mean maybe germany's been a bit more progressive but it hasn't made that much difference um so it's overplayed well i think you can't blame the media you can't you can't Blame the messenger. Yeah. So you know, it's up to um, the, pu- the, pub- the public. Aren't stupid? They can um, they can make their own choices. I think. Uh, Louise, thank you very much for sitting here eating chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's being on chocolate, we think. We think, we think it's, it's definitely dark chocolate. It's really good. How can people uh, find out more about you and follow you and keep in mm. touch and all that sort of thing? Well, um, I'm all over social media, darling. <laughs> um, uh, you know, 
Luby Gray on Twitter and Instagram. And I've got a website as well. And um, my book is on Amazon. Though Amazon... If you no, go to your independent bookshop. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> if you, I don't know, well, do what the hell you like, but buy my <laughs> <Just> book. Buy <laughs> and just remind everyone what the name of the book is, yeah. just in case. It's called The Ethical Carnival and My Year Killing to Eat. And um, it's fluffier than it sounds, honest. <laughs> Louise, thank you very, very much. Um, I really, really enjoyed reading your book. I think it's very powerful. It surprised me, um, and I think it's got a lovely blood-red cover as well. Uh, so I hope everyone listening uh, picks up a copy. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. So that is just about it for Sustainable 63. Thank you very, 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 very much to Louise Gray for coming all the way out to the environment to talk to us about her lovely book. Do go and buy it. It's excellent. Uh, and you can get in touch with us. Let us know what you thought of the show. We are on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. On Facebook, just search Sustainable or email us at hello at sustainababble.fish and if you enjoyed this episode and you're new to the show go back and listen to all our other episodes what you will find on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or any of them podcast things and, and leave us a little review if you liked it thanks thank you very much we are going to have one of our little breaks now um, mm. this isn't a romantic break Dave and I are still very much together uh, we're not consciously uncoupling or anything of that kind but we are going to have a little bit of time off so do delve into the back catalogue and we will be back before you know it later in the autumn indeed so and thank you very much Ol, for all your sterling babbling thus far long may the babble continue onwards Viva la babble